coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We've got some top tips to turn you from SSH novice to port forwarding master in no time. Plus the latest on a confusing story of Kaspersky, the NSA, and a boneheaded contractor. Then our backup sense is tingling with the story of $30,000 worth of Bitcoin lost to a forgotten pin. Plus, we've got your fantastic feedback, a record-setting roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 343 for October 31st, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me, oh, it's our dear friend, Mr. Dan. Welcome, Dan. Can't even pronounce my name today. What's wrong with me? I guess it's Halloween, so we should be spookier. But uh, you know what? You're spooky enough already with all the terrifying things you normally tell us about on this here program. I'm sure it's all your sweater. That's all it is, is your sweater. It's my sweater. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Uh, anything new in your world before we jump into our jam-packed show today? I found out, or rather I experienced firsthand, when you set no uh, exec equals no on a ZFS data set, okay. and you try and run a script, even just a <laughs> shell script, it Turns says out. permission denied. And then you run around trying to figure out why is it permission denied, and you can't figure it out. That sounds like it would be pretty confusing, especially if you forgot about that there uh, property that you'd set. Maybe you'd done it a long well, time ago. and it, I had only just set it. What I had done is I was – I have a document that I've I've laid out all the directories that are going to be used for the fre- new Freshports mail, um, web server. Okay. And I went through and I said, okay, I'm going to be setting this, setting this, setting this. And it's no exec on almost – exec equals no on almost every data set. And then when I finally, <clears throat> excuse me, moved stuff into the new data sets and then brought everything up, I said, yeah, this, that looks good. That's there. That's there. Yeah, that's good. Why isn't it processing commits? What, what's going on? Why is it saying permission tonight? Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> plus X. Yeah, I can read it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I said everything. Totally right. forgot. Totally forgot. If all I'd done is gone in and said, you know, ZFS set exec equals no. It would have been. Yep. I would have noticed it right away, but because I did a whole bunch of things all at once, didn't factor it, in. It, it, t- it took me fifteen or twenty minutes to figure out what was going wrong. Oh, uh, that's annoying. But you got it all working now. Yes, Excellent. it is all working now. All right. Well, uh, you know what else is working today? It's our show. Yeah, that's right. Uh, should we jump right in then? Yes, we should. Okay, so I guess first now, up today, uh, it's going to be a little bit. Uh, just it's just some practical advice, a little different than what we normally do. Yeah, it, it is very light, lighthearted. There's nothing serious on this. And it is actually very interesting. I did not know that you could do this. Um, Bob Plankers is letting us know. Did you know that when you're using OpenSSH from the command line, you have a variety of escape sequences as available to you? I did not know this. I knew that till dot gets you out of like a, what was it, a, a, a Kermit session or something? I, I remember doing some sort of session to something. Uh, I think it might have been 
uh, a serial port connection. I knew that till dot got you out of that. Uh, okay. SSH somewhere, then type tilde and question mark to see all the options. You get something like this, and it gives a list of supported escape sequences, including tilde dot to terminate the connection and any multi <coughs> multiplexed sessions. Tilde B sends a break to the remote system. Tilde C opens a command line. We'll get to that. A command line? Tilde R requests a rekey. That would be interesting to see in effect. You know, I'd run a TCP dump and then do a rekey and see what you see going. Tilde Control Z does a suspend SSH. Um, and, and so that basically does a local Control Z instead of a remote Control Z. Oh, yeah. Because if you're SSH something and you do a control Z, whatever you're in will background. (laughs) But if you want to background the SSH process and do something locally, um, tilde ampersand will background SSH when waiting for connections to terminate. And tilde question mark will give this list that you said. And if you do tilde tilde, it'll send the escape character. Now, the one thing I wanted to mention is that when playing around with this, um, I couldn't get the tilde to work sometimes, and I couldn't figure it out. Tilde has to be the first character you type. So if you do tilde, if you do back, if you do a character and then backspace and then tilde, it won't work. It has to be the first character, right? After you'll, you'll, after hitting enter, yeah, you'll just yeah. end up with like that. You'll just end up with typing it, and that's no, that's no good. Right, right. Um, um. Now, this command line is interesting. In the command line, you can do forwarding. You can request a local forward, a remote forward, a dynamic forward, and you can cancel a forward request. I don't know what a dynamic forward is. That's interesting. Huh. Oh, a dynamic forward is like, um, I mean, there's there's more to it, but uh, one instance is like a dash D for uh, like a SOX5 forwarding. So rather than and binding, just forwards all, all of, okay. Yeah, so you can, uh, one thing, I'll, I'll use that commonly, let's say uh, Firefox makes it really easy in the advanced settings. You can go use a local SOX5 proxy, SSH-D, yep. 1080 as a port. You can use whatever port, but I think that's fairly standard. Um, and then any requests Firefox make, uh, all get, and you can have an option to do DNS as well, all get proxied through SSH and dynamically resolved rather than a static forward from one you know, port hostname pair to another host port name pair. Uh, you can browse the entire internet over your SSH connection that way. So basically, all requests that hit there get forwarded. Yes. Huh. Yeah, it's pretty handy. You'll have to give it a shot. Huh. Um, it almost sounds like a VPN. Yeah, I mean, you can use it uh, like that way, but yeah. you have to configure support in the application. Has to you know be able to use know to use that as a proxy. Uh, it won't mm-hmm. work otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um. It would be useful just to see the forwarded connections. Oh yeah, no, that, that seems actually very useful. I've never, I've, 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 I've never done that. I've never done forwarded connections. Are they referring to like when you do a bastion host and and then you can connect to one and then automatically connect to the next one? I've seen that that sort of configuration. You know, instead of config, instead of SSHing to the bastion host and and then to the host that you really want to SSH, SSH to. You can tell SSH to, hey, listen, connect here, and then 
connect over there, the next thing. I think that's what it's referring to, but I've never really tried it because I don't really have bastion hosts. And when I do, I just connect to one and then the other. I do have one. I do have one <laughs> bastion host in, in a way. I have a external Nagios instance on DigitalOcean, not the one that fell over earlier this week. That's good. We should talk about that too. Yeah. Um, very briefly. Remind me to come back to DigitalOcean. Sure. Um, did you did you read about that? How, no, how we got I locked out of DigitalOcean and couldn't get in? We'll uh, have to talk it, about that. It, 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 was, it was clever. I know I'm saying I'm not saying I was clever. The solution someone gave me <laughs> was clever. Oh, um, so I do have one external Nagios instance which is on DigitalOcean and I can only SSH to it from hosts outside my home network. Okay, I see. So it's hosts out there on the internet with predefined static IPs. Home has a dynamic IP. And I only allow incoming SSH connections from certain locations. Ah, I see. And so what I do is SSH from my laptop to one of these hosts to the next one. And I think that's what they're talking about by forwarded connections, isn't it? Uh, that's that's one component of it, but you can also just do it um, most most commonly dash L and dash R, uh, yeah. as they say here. Uh, those uh, do local or remote forwards, and so you can then just forward a specific port. Uh, so you can yeah, either yeah. take a port that's on the remote host and be able to view it as if it was yeah. a local port, or the reverse, take a port like let's say you have um, mm-hmm. you have a web server listening on your machine and you want to make it available on a web server temporarily, then mm-hmm. you can do a remote forward and do that. Um, uh, I've seen that used. I'm familiar with 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 that type, but I've never done this. Uh, what they're talking about. Uh, so if that's all they're talking about is forwarding connections, is much uh, more straightforward than I thought. Mm. Right. Now, I guess, have we exhausted this? I think so. I can't think of anything else to talk about here. Uh, it, just- it, it is. Go. Oh, I was just saying, it's, it's just very handy to know. A lot of people, like you are saying, if you don't know uh, that it exists, then you're really just missing out on some some functionality. Uh, I think a lot of people get told sort of the, you know, tilde, tilde period to break out of a connection, uh, as sometimes that's mm-hmm. your best bet to escape SSH session from hell. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think the rest of it is less commonly known. I'm sure there's going to be some people out there who are like, yeah, whatever, this is old hat. I use it all the time. Uh, but there's some, you know, there's some handy tips in here. Uh, especially if you just forget and you want to be able to know, you can do tilde question mark. That's probably the best one. Then you get this whole little guide. I can also see it. Maybe you have a long running uh, SSH session. You want to add or remove forwards, check in on what has been forwarded. Eh, all That's that. what I find really neat is being able to add and remove forwards during the session. I had no idea you could do that. Yeah. Without having to tear it down. It does seem handy. Like maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you have to plug in a hardware key or something like that, or mm-hmm. it's a really long mm-hmm. password, whatever. Uh, one less way to do it a little more quickly without having to re- tear down and reset up the session. So that's nice. Anyway, you mm. wanted to come back to DigitalOcean. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, one morning this past, I guess it was last week now, uh, late last week, sitting in a coffee shop before going to work, and which is back here at home. So I go for, go for coffee, sit there, do my email, come back. I, I said, oh, yeah, um, What's his name server? It, 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 we've, we've talked about upgrading it from 10.3 to 11.1, and we haven't done it. 
we usually do we usually upgraded his servers around Christmas time when the business is slow, but he's sold the business. So I'm just helping him with this little mail server and all it does is maintain mail for his domain. So I said, Yeah, that won't take very long to upgrade. I've I've got half an hour. Let, let, let's do this. So I ran the FreeBSD update and stuff like that. And I was upgrading from 10.3 to 11.1. Everything went fine. There's a lot of really strange merge stuff going on with etsyrc.subber. And I said, that was weird. And then rebooted it, and it didn't come back. And I said, oh, well, I'll just jump into the DigitalOcean console. Yeah, totally. It's super handy. It, it's great. I use it. I use it all the time when I mess up my own droplet. <laughs> so I have his login details. He's given me his login details. So I logged in, and it said, "Ah, send us this uh, login code that we just sent to your email address." Uh, uh, that's the droplet. All the email for his domain goes to that droplet. Oh. He has no other email address. So I said, I don't know what to do here. And so I tried to find something. I, I went to DigitalOcean to open a ticket. You got to log in to you open a ticket. You got to log in to open a ticket. Boy. Um, so I sent them a, requ- a, a non-ticket request uh, and didn't hear back. Uh, that other guy may have heard back by now. So I got to work and I posted something on Twitter and said, do I know anything at anyone at DigitalOcean that can help here? Mm-hmm. And someone not at DigitalOcean said, do they still have control over their DNS? Yes, they did. Uh, well, you can spin up another MX and point the domain yeah. at that MX. Brilliant idea. Totally. So I, so I just spun up a jail, changed their, their DNS because I had credentials had for their DNS, okay. pointed it at the new jail. Five minutes later, a whole bunch of email <laughs> authentication things flooded in. Yeah. I wasn't going to try and read any of them because I, I wouldn't be able to figure out which one was still authentic. Mm-hmm. And all I was doing is spooling these email addresses, uh, email to, to forward on later. So I waited for that to settle down, <laughs> then sent another authentication right. request trying to log in, got the email, got logged in, went from there. Awesome. Um, That's pretty handy, yeah. It got worse. Oh. The reason the system could not boot was because Etsy RC Subber was borked. It was wrong. And then the next problem was trying to get, trying to edit that file, you know, VI Etsy yeah, right. RC Subber. Make the changes. Oh, there's way too many changes to make here. Uh, I'll just move the file out of the way and SC, SCP up another one because. I look closer. There's about a thousand, eight hundred to a thousand lines different. Wow. Okay. Something so, weird happened. That's a that's a big change. Yeah. So I went to save the RC away to save it to look at it later. Backup. Read only file system. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh. And I went. I went. Through, you know, mount minus a. Mm-hmm. Nope. Tried various things. I can't remember what the actual solution it was. It might have been something like mount minus a minus. UW, something like that. Uh, I put it in a blog post. It was so interesting. And finally, I got it loaded up. But then I didn't have any of my network settings anywhere. You're just really starting so had, from scratch over here. 
So I had to go back to DigitalOcean, which I was still logged in, find out what the IP addresses right. were, go, set that go up. through that. Then I was able to uh, SSH up. Uh, I originally thought, hey, it's only 2,000 lines in this file. I can copy and paste it into my console session. <laughs> no, there's no paste on the console. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. And that's a lot to type by hand, I should say. Yeah. So when, once I got the MX up and running, it took about an hour and a half, two hours to get everything sorted out. But uh, I have no idea how Etsy RC server got messed up, none whatsoever. But I have no doubt it was something that I did, not something <laughs> the FreeBSD update process did. Right. Interesting. Uh, well, I'm glad you got anyway, I wrestled control back and, yes. and you're now back in yeah. command. Yikes. Well, that was a, that was a heck of an adventure. Before I we, don't wish it on anyone, but no, it was fun. It I don't wish fun. it on anyone either. I guess before yeah. we move on, one thing I did want to add that we didn't cover it about the article before is uh, you can change the escape character as well. So if you don't yes. like tilde or if you use it for anything else, then uh, there's some options in the SSH config to modify that. All right. Well, and, oh, go on. And Wait. This is not a new blog post. This is a six-year-old blog post. So this stuff has been around for long. This isn't something new. Yeah, take yourself to this, the next this, level. This Become is, an SSH power user. Stuff. Yes, there you go. Excellent. Well, thanks, Dan. That's a handy, handy, dandy article. That is for sure, and uh, a heck of a Dio horror story. But you kind of highlighted right there in that story all the reasons that uh, DigitalOcean is great, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. Not only is it super fast, easy to use, and they have FreeBSD support, so hey, that's pretty great too. But they provide a lot of, you know, they're 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 secure. Uh, they don't make it easy for strangers to try to take over your account, and they provide a number of different ways to be able to debug your account, right? So one of those that I love is the HTML5 console. You can log in just like you have a regular console to a regular old virtual machine or a piece of hardware from what you know and love. A lot of their competitors don't necessarily have this or it uses a weird Java UI. Maybe you've seen those or, heaven forbid, Flash. No, no. DigitalOcean, it's first class. HTML5 works in just about every browser, works really well. I know Dan's used it. I've used it. It's great. DigitalOcean has a ton of those kind of improvements, optimizations, and an incredibly intuitive UI. Their dashboard is just top-notch, super fast, super easy to use, and it's intuitive. That's the big difference, right? It's not, there's not a thousand different sub-menus that you can get buried in reading documentation for days. Oh, I mean, there's tons of documentation to read, but you won't need it because it's so simple. Even their API, everything's built on their API. There's a ton of third-party open-source contributions that tie into the API, Everything gets updated really fast. They're one of these people that, you know, if you're using if you're using Vagrant or any of these sort of CI, DevOps integration tools, they all have DigitalOcean support. It's all pretty well first class. Maybe you use Terraform. DigitalOcean's right there. And I'm sure they'll have an API to use Spaces before too long if they don't already. What Spaces, though? Oh, yeah, I just snuck that in there. What Spaces? Spaces is a new beautiful, simple, and scalable object storage service from DigitalOcean. And like anything from Dio, you know it's going to be super simple to get started with, super easy to use, and have simple, transparent pricing. Yeah, that's right. Plus, it's going to be way cheaper than the competitors, because that's just Dio style. Uh, what's their main game, though? Maybe you don't need object storage. You should definitely go try it out, because it's super handy. There's HTML5 interface to upload files right to it, handy-dandy share links, a ton of great stuff. Maybe you're like Dan and I, and you just need some compute, right? You've all you've heard about the cloud. You want to get something for yourself. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That gets you started and gets you a $10 credit. What can you buy with that incredible credit? Oh, my friends, head on over to their pricing page, and you will see 
DigitalOcean has the best droplets. They call them droplets. You may know them as a VPS or a virtual machine. It all runs on the KVM hypervisor. It's got 40 gigabit E right to that hypervisor, so you've got incredible transit. Oh, boy. And it just gets better from there, starting at $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. Or seven-tenths of a cent. You get 512 MB of memory, one virtual CPU, 20 gigs of all SSD disk. And it's really, it's just all SSD disk over at DigitalOcean and a whopping one terabyte of transfer. Plus, receive free access to services including monitoring, cloud firewall, cloud firewalls, and so much more. So maybe you're not like an IP tables expert. You don't need to be a DO. They've got these kinds of things provided for you. Just like you'd expect from any modern cloud pr- provider. It's incredible. So use our promo code SNAPOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean. Get started today. And uh, hey, let us know if you have any fun stories, just like Dan did. Thanks, Dan. And thank you to Dio for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right. Well, with that, I guess it's time for our next story today. This one goes back to the realm of, uh, you know, not just a handy tip. So uh, regular TechSnap territory. Yeah, the... the this one needs a little bit of background. If you haven't heard it already, it's not going to make any sense. Yeah, that's a good point. But not so long ago, the U.S. government said, hey, listen, uh, if you're using Kaspersky, uh, please stop. <laughs> and that was a directive for the for the U.S. government departments, I think. And they had 60, 30, 60 or 90 days, I think, to, to get rid of it. And... The reason why they decided to get rid of it, I don't know if that was public then, um, but just uh, a few weeks ago, we came out, we we covered a story that seemed to indicate that they were tipped off by the Israelis because the Israelis were in Kaspersky looking around and found U.S. top secret documents downloaded to Kaspersky. And... They said, how did this happen? What are they doing? And there was all kinds of theories that Kaspersky was, you know, what better way to collect documents but through a virus scanning service. Um, and it was speculated that, that that's what happened. But now Kaspersky here is coming back and saying, well, no, it's not our fault. It's the NSA contractor's fault who put, you know, top secret documents on his personal laptop. And what came out here is how uh, is an explanation from Kaspersky as to how the top secret NSA documents wound up on their servers. And they're putting all the blame on this NSA contractor's dumb mistake. That's their quote. So this sounds feasible, but it also sounds like a plausible deniability. So... According to Kaspersky's account, the company had been tracking malware tools connected to a hacking collective that's become known as the Equation Group, which is thought to be connected to the NSA. The company's software, Kaspersky's security network, was installed on the home computer of a man who has been anonymously described as a contractor for the NSA. Kaspersky says the analyst computer was affected, infected with malware through an, quote, Illegal Microsoft Office Activation Key Generator, unquote. 
Doesn't everybody have those? Of course. That was apparently used to deactivate some pirated software that was downloaded on the computer. Detection for that particular backdoor had been part of Kaspersky's package since 2013. So I'm not sure I would download software to generate an illegal key or, or generate a pirated key. I'm not sure I would do that. And if I was, I would have all my virus software running. Huh. But then it it says here that the virus software would stop that. Yeah. Quoting here, executing the key gen would not have been possible with the antivirus enabled. Okay, so that's why he disabled it, is because he couldn't get, get it to run. The malware dropped from the trojanized key gen was a full-blown backdoor, which may have allowed third parties access to the user's machine, the company said. So they're not, you know, it may have allowed the third party to get access to his machine. So they're claiming that someone else could have gotten this information. But it gets better. When Kaspersky's product was re-enabled, the user apparently scanned their system multiple times when the software detected new and unknown variants, that's in quotes, of malware connected to the equation group, which is which people think is uh, thought to be connected to the NSA. Right. So, now... That's when things went wrong. A 7-zip archive of documents was retrieved for, anal an for analysis because the user had set the software to send reports of malicious detections. Hmm. When Kaspersky's researchers opened the file, they found that data headers labeled the documents classified property. The company's founder, Eugene Kaspersky, tells the Associated Press that he told his employees immediately that it must be deleted. Hey, so, before I tell you why I think this is implausible, I, I want, want to get some of your feedback on what you think of this report. Well, on the surface, you know, I can, I can see where their story makes some sense. Like, sure, they were, sure they were running it. I can certainly imagine uh, disabling it. I wonder if this, this might have mm -hmm. been some sort of enterprise-grade... Uh, you know, not necessarily like your personal personal uh, malware protection, uh, but maybe maybe if you're a big enterprise, then the stuff you have does prevent running key gens and other other type nefarious type utilities. And I can also imagine how yes, like they do want to collect samples of malware and other sus suspicious files, but it does seem a little too convenient. Let I find the bit about not being able to run the key gen while while the software was running perfectly plausible. That mm -hmm. makes sense. So you turn it off, you run it, and then you turn it back on again. Then you see all this stuff, so you start scanning it. But why was a 7-zip archive of documents considered suspicious? It's documents. Yeah. And they... Basically, the software enables uh, – where was it? What's the exact word? The malware dropped from the Trojanized, yeah, and they're talking about no, no, that's when things are – because the user had set the software to send reports of malicious detections. Reports. That doesn't say, yeah, if if you find a problem with one of my files, you can send it away. Yeah, definitely. But, that's, that's definitely yeah, that, different. And that, that, and they, that does happen. The software does report back variants. It does. It does send back details of that. Right. But and you might expect, like you know, um, 
hash sums of binaries or other things to be sent in that sort of thing or fingerprints of, of utilities that they use to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what I'd be curious to see is too, is like, okay, well, just the same seven zip, does it still like flag to other, are other virus vendors flagged by this? Is there something malicious there or was this just totally well, bogus? It's going to be a unique seven zip archive of documents. It's yes. not going to be found anywhere. Oh, right. No, totally. It's, it's more it. like, does Kaspersky still, you know, within there, yeah. can they scan it? The one that got uploaded to them, if they scan it, does yeah. their software still flag it? Because that's and, a problem. And I initially thought, oh, no, that why would they open some files sent from someone somewhere? But then I realized, well, they're going to think, it, it. oh, look, the software found something new here. We better look at it and find out what it is. And so they opened it and saw, oh, this is just straightforward documents. Oh, look what it says here. Oh. So, yeah. When I initially read this, I thought, no, there's no way. But now I do think this is entirely plausible as to, uh, as to what happened. And it wasn't actually something that went out and looked for documents and pulled it da- down. But why it was labeled, the only issue here is is why it was detected as a new and unknown variant of a problem. Why did the software detect it like that? Right. Because it's just a, a 7-zip archive. The, the fact that the software, the fact that the software sent an example back, is perfectly valid. That happens because when they find a, a new virus and they they send it back, that's how how they're how they're detected. They suddenly get ten thousand reports of the same pieces of malware. That's how things get flagged and looked at. But this is just one, just one file. Anyway. According to Kaspersky, the fault rests on the shoulders of the NSA contractor who allegedly brought home government surveillance tools and then decided to activate their consumer antivirus software. So they brought home government surveillance tools, not documents. So it's two different things here. We can probably put that down to reporting, not incorrect facts or not inconsistencies. So... Quoting again, so Kaspersky Lab is arguing that software is doing exactly what it was supposed to do and that it deleted the classified material when it realized what it had. I can find that very straightforward. But a key point that it is denying, a point that U.S. government officials have used to justify the the ban on Kaspersky software from federal use, is the accusation that it may have customized its tools to hunt for keywords like classified or top secret. We're never going to know that unless you start reverse engineering right. the client. So I don't know who to who to believe now. I really don't. You can trust me, Dan. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know who to trust. Not at all. Um, so you'll be installing Kaspersky software on all of your machines right after the show? No. Let, let's read the. <coughs> pardon me. Let's read this one last paragraph. It's not the last paragraph, but it's the last one I'll read. As the AP notes, Kaspersky's story aligns with what several sources have told several media outlets. Someone working for the NSA broke protocol and took home classified information that was then transmitted to Russia because the worker was a bonehead. <laughs> oh, That's boy. a direct quote. And yes, 
this would never have happened, I'm sure, if he hadn't have taken this stuff home. It's not believed that the feckless analyst had any malicious intent, but an investigation is still ongoing. Where Kaspersky's story differs is that the company insists it didn't share the information with the Russian government, and it says that the worker's computer had a backdoor installed that could have been exploited by someone else. Unfortunately for the security company, whether it worked on behalf of Russia's spying operation or not, its reputation with the public is significantly damaged. Yeah, regardless of, of what happened, this is a black mark. Uh, the industry it works in is highly reliant on trust and the accusations coming from the U.S. government coupled with paranoia surrounding the Russian government puts Kaspersky in an almost unwinnable situation. That I agree with. Yeah. For now, it's best to reserve judgment until at least the details of an independent analysis are released. But yeah, this, this, can you imagine this being in part of a spy novel or something like that? <laughs> yes, a little bit. Uh, I mean, it might not be a very thrilling spy novel, but... Uh, yeah, from a techno point of view, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, techno spy novel, there we go. Boy, uh, feel, you gotta you gotta feel a little bit sorry for the NSA that they they keep hiring these contractors who really just can't keep their documents where they belong. I mean, hey, it benefits us over here at the TechStep program, but it's a little bit. Don't take stuff home. Yeah, right. It's. I'm sure the policies are very clearly laid out. I'm sure you have to sit through a thousand meetings of, uh, hey, here's what the official information security policies are, etc., etc., etc. Yes. Uh, yikes. All right. Well, uh, anything else about this one before we move on? Okay, well then, it's time for our next sponsor this evening. That's right, it's our dear friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you'll find a smarter way to do mobile. Maybe you fancy yourself a bit of a spy. I think I do now after that last article. You'll probably want a separate spy cell phone. On most of the major service providers out there, that's just simply not affordable. Not for a whim, not for, for a fun little side project. But on Ting, things are different. And that's just one of the many ways they're a smarter way to do mobile. And that's why it's mobile that makes sense. So what am I talking about here? All right. Well, you don't even have to believe me. This is how simple it is. Just go to their rates page. Click on rates. Textsnap.ting.com slash rates. That's how you get started. And they say it. I mean, they say it better than I ever could right here on the page. The best plan? Why the best plan is no plan. Only pay for what you use. Use less, pay less. Every month is different. Just play around here and you can get an idea for what you might spend in a month. So lines start at just $6 a month. For the price of a hamburger, you can have cell phone service. It's that simple. You probably already have a device that works on Ting. It works on both. They have both CDMA and GSM. They have a whole bring your own device page where you can go check out the IMEI number of your device. Make sure, verify that it'll work on the Ting network. Odds are it will. Bring that on over $6 a month. Then you get started. Now, it's simple. Don't, don't try to estimate what you might need. Don't sign a two-year contract, whatever you do. No, just use your phone like, like you want to. Don't even think about it. Use your phone. You have your phone. You can pay for your phone. That's why you have it. Boom. Done. Use your phone. All right. Then Ting will tally up what you've used. You know, maybe you're pretty savvy like me, so you don't really use any minutes. Occasionally, okay, okay. Occasionally, grandma calls. She's not so hip on the technology, so no Wi-Fi calling for her, but you get 100 minutes for just $3 a month. So 
it's pretty reasonable. All right, maybe the same thing, a couple text messages, and then there's Wi-Fi everywhere. There's probably Wi-Fi at your office. There's Wi-Fi here at the studio. There's Wi-Fi on buses today. So I bet you you're going to stay maybe right around 500 megs, maybe, maybe a gig if you're splurging here. But uh, boom, what does that get you? $22 a month. That's it, $22. So when you go to techsnap.ting.com, guess what? You're going to get a service credit of $25. That's why we say that'll probably pay for your full month first month of service. Maybe not if you're a big user, but that's the beauty of Ting. Some months you use more, some months you use less. Let's say you're going on a vacation, you start using your phone more. That doesn't matter because you'll make up for that cost with the rest of the year. That's just how it works over at Ting. And that's why the best plan really is no plan. But don't worry, Ting's got everything else that you might need. They've got three-way calling, voicemail, and one of my favorite aspects, tethering. They don't stop you. They don't flash some weird custom ROM on your phone that prevents you from tethering or makes you call them up to get approved. No. And it doesn't come from some weird magic tethering data bucket. That's insane. No, data is data. You just pay for what you use. That's one of the reasons Ting makes a a great backup internet connection. Head on over to their shop. Like maybe you don't already have a phone. You want a new phone. Or you can even pick up a MiFi. They've got a ton of great options. Whatever you need to get connected, that's what Ting is here. They don't have to fight trying to keep cables up and running, running a whole bunch of infrastructure. No, they just resell CDMA, GSM service, whatever works for you in your area. And they'll have the shiny new iPhone X coming soon. So you can get the latest and greatest running on Ting. Keep up with all your friends and neighbors, but know you'll get in one heck of a better deal. Check it all out at techsnap.ting.com. And thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, and that brings us to the final story of today's roundup. Roundup, what am I saying? That's the end of the show. This is the main segment. Mm -hmm. And it's fitting because this next story, it's a doozy. We, most of us have heard the story about a guy who threw away some hard drives that had bitcoins on it, and he never realized until later. One of the things to keep in mind is that bitcoin isn't a physical thing. It's a logical thing. So basically, you have (coughs) – you can literally think of it as a file, and that file contains your bitcoins. And if you delete that file, those bitcoins are gone. It's not like someone stole it. You've just – it's just like throwing 20 bucks in the fire. It's gone. It's not like someone else has it. You just don't have it. Um, So in this story, we have a chap – who is a research director at the Institute for the Futures Blockchain Futures Lab. And he went and he bought $3,000 worth of bitcoins. So it was 7.4 bitcoins. So this was January 1st, January 4th of this year. And his bitcoins were worth about $3,000. And the title of the story is, I Forgot My Pin, An Epic Tale of Losing $30,000 in Bitcoin. So it starts off at three, it winds up at 30. So over the course of the story, something changes and he's forgotten his pen. So when he got it, when he, when he got this Bitcoin, the thing that he, he did was he interviewed a bunch of Bitcoin experts and they all told him that the safest way to protect your cash was to use something called a hardware wallet. Um, have you ever u- used Bitcoin or anything? Do you have a hardware wallet? Uh, yes, uh, I have used Bitcoin. I'm, I, I do not have one, uh, but I'm, I've seen them in use. Okay. So it, it, it sounds n- like not much 
difference from a USB stick with some logic in it. Yes. Like a lot of uh, hardware crypto tokens. mm -hmm. So this little device is basically a glorified USB stick that stores your private Bitcoin keys and allows you to authorize transactions without exposing those keys to the Internet where they could be seized by bad actors. Yeah, exactly. Like you might have for like a GPG key or an SSH key, that sort of thing. Yep. So he settled on a hardware wallet called the Trezor, T-R-E-Z-O-R, which is a check word for safe, manufactured by the Bulletproof, uh, manufactured by a company called Bulletproof, or described as a manufacturer as Bulletproof. He bought one for 100 bucks. 100 bucks. Wow. So it arrived, he set it up, and the website instructed him to write down the 24 words randomly generated by the treasure one word at a time the words were like aware and move and fashion and better okay and these words were were to be his um recovery words and it could be used to generate the master private key to his bit bitcoin how that gets used i don't know but basically they they would have taken the key and generated these 24 words from it. And from those 24 words, they can then recreate the key. So it's some algorithm that that they're using. Now, he was also prompted to create a pin, which would lock the device. So if you use the, if you want to use the device, you got to supply the pin. So he wrote down the 24 four words and he figured that he, he chose a couple of short number combinations that he was familiar with and could easily recall. And he put that on the same piece of paper as a 24 okay. uh, word list. So the you've got the recovery keys and you've got the, the, the pin to get in. So sounds pretty safe. You've got one, you lose, you lose the, the device. You can regenerate the keys with the words to generate the, to get into the device, you've got the pin. So either way, so it's important to keep the paper safe and hidden because anyone, any anyone could use it to steal the bitcoins. So he transferred his currency from the web-based wallet into the device and um, put this orange piece of paper into a desk drawer in his home office. Okay. His plan was to buy a length of flat aluminum stock and letter punch the 24 words into it and then store it somewhere safe. He's going to do that right after the holidays. So, next section, the mistake. March 16th, Bitcoins were now worth about $8,800. So he's gained 10% in about two months. He's gained 10%, nearly two and a half. So... It was 6.30 in the morning and was heading away on on vacation. Uh, So what he did is he took the piece of paper and gave them a note. And Jane, if anything happens, show this paper to Corey. He'll know what to do with it. And he took the paper into Jane's bedroom, which was his older daughter, and stuck it under her pillow. And then they headed off to L.A. airport. They come back from holiday. Bitcoin's worth about $8,400. So it's dropped a little bit in just over two weeks. So they went to get the piece of paper out. They couldn't find it. They couldn't see it. It was nowhere. Uh, They checked the cleaners. The cleaners said that they had found it and threw it away. 
No. Yep. The oh, cleaners had thrown my. away the piece of paper. So he knew the garbage had already been collected, but he went through the outside trash anyway. Nothing but egg cartons, espresso grinds, and the Amazon boxes. The orange piece of paper was decomposing somewhere under a pile of garbage in a Los Angeles landfill. Carla asked if losing the paper was a big deal. Not really. It's just a hassle, that's all. I'll have to send all the bitcoins from the treasure to an online wallet, reinitializing the treasure, generate a new word list, and put the bitcoins back in the treasure. It wouldn't be so bad if I couldn't remember my pin, but I know it's 551445. Okay, okay. So now we're back uh, to the same day, and he plugged it in and typed in the pin. He must have made an error, he thought, so he tried the number again, being very careful. Wrong pin. And he tried a variation, uh, wrong pin. This is getting ridiculous. I've done it at least a dozen times in recent months without having to refer to the paper. Uh, okay, it's probably this. Wrong pin entered. So it makes you wait longer every time. Yeah, sure. That's good. The, the delay doubled every time a wrong pin. The number of wrong pin entries is stored in the memory, and you can't power cycle it to make it, the wait time go to zero. The best you can do by turning it on and off is make the timer start over again. So he was the thief trying to steal his own bitcoins back from his treasure. He might have kissed them goodbye. Eventually, the pin, the timer got up to about 34 minutes, and he figured he'd be dead by the time he made his 33rd guess, which is going to be like 34 years away. Oh, wow. He told his wife, can't remember the pin. She asked if she'd saved the PIN in his one password application. Told her he hadn't. When she asked me why, I didn't have an answer. <laughs> I knew it would be a mistake to waste a, pressure, a precious guess. And Anyway, we're, we're going to jump forward here because the rest of this, it jumps forward to the next day and he the next day when he tries waiting. all the things. Yeah, he's spent, spending all of his time waiting. Gosh. He starts investigating how he can get through. And someone said, hey, listen, I might have a way to get into it. But he, he didn't really trust that guy. Mm -hmm. So uh, by now, we were in a April. We're now in May, late May. And his Bitcoins are worth, worth $13,000. And he went away and and tried hypnosis. After nearly four hours ah, in the office, he what? decided the pin was 5514455. -55, and it took him a couple of days to get get the nerve to try. And he tried it. And it then said, he, the, the treasurer said it was wrong. He's going to have to wait four and a half hours. So the next entry, uh, May, is now August. So it's a few months later. And Bitcoin, his Bitcoins are now worth $28,000. <laughs> No. I couldn't escape the fact that the only thing keeping me from a small fortune was a simple number. One that I had used, that one that I used to recall without effort and was now hidden in my brain, impervious to hypnosis, meditation, and self-scolding. <laughs> I felt helpless. My daughter's efforts to sneak up on me and say, quick, what's the Bitcoin password? <laughs> didn't That's work. adorable. Some nights before I went to sleep, I'd lie in bed and ask my brain to search itself for the pin. I'd wake up with nothing. Every possible pin I could imagine sounded no better or worse than any other. I hope he's keeping a list of the pins that he tried. Yes. 
the Bitcoin was growing in value and it was getting further away from me. I imagined it as a treasure trust on a Tron-like grid receding from view toward a dimly glowing horizon. I would die without ever finding it out. So going to scroll down again. I'm scrolling down a lot. So now last we were at August 12th. Now we're at August 16th. Bitcoin is worth $32,000. He got an email. From Satoshi Labs, the manufacturers of the Trezor, it said, Trezor firmware security update 1.52, meant to fix a security issue which affects all devices with versions lower than 1.52. In order to exploit the device, would have to break in, destroying the case, you'd have to have to flash and firmware, and the, this attack vector is eliminated and your device is safe if you do this upgrade. So all regular listeners to this show should now be thinking the same thing. Could there be a vulnerability in yeah. Trezor's bulletproof security, one that I could take advantage of? So I went to look, and he found a post titled, Trezor, Security Glitches Reveal Your Private Keys. This is exactly what this guy needs. Perfect. The author included photos of a disassembled Trezor and a screen grab of a file dump that had 24 keywords and a pin. Wow. So, this guy goes and talks to several people. He knows that he didn't upgrade to 152 because downgrading the firmware could have wiped the storage on the on the Trezor. So, he's still on a vulnerable version and he doesn't want to upgrade because there's $30,000 in there. Yep. So, he went back and... Uh, he talked to an author that he'd known for some time, and he said, listen, I know this 15-year-old kid who seems to know what he's doing. So he got in touch with that and said, um, uh, this is what I'm trying to do. Can you help me? And he said, yeah, I think I can. So what, what they did is best to start by clarifying expectations and terms for the possibility of success, but also the possibility of failure, which is higher. Yeah. He told them. The, the owner said, I want step-by-step video instructions on what to do. I'll give you $200 up front and an additional 800 if I get my Bitcoins back. And so the guy agreed. And he also said, if you end up spending a lot of extra time preparing the instructions, let me know and I can increase the payment. So th- this was on about September 6, August 16th. So come August 24th, Bitcoins are worth 32,000. He said, hey, listen, I've got this, I've got this, and listen, I really think, you know, I spent a lot lot of time. Uh, how about I, I want to get 0.35 bitcoins if for the video and the exploit firmware, but then 0.5 bitcoins if you're successful. So basically the guy's asking for $3,700, which is roughly 10% of what he's got in, in the bitcoin. So, so the guy said, yeah, but he's got to pay out before he gets anything. Right. So, long story short, he sent him 35 from another online wallet, um, and then he downloaded the stuff. And this is now October 2026, 20, sorry, August 26, and the stuff is worth $32,000. And this guy is breaking into his bit into into his device. He did buy a second one to practice on first. Nice. And he went through this practicing several times. And at the end here there is a video of what this guy is doing. And it worked. 
he got the 24 seed words he'd written on an orange piece of paper. It was there on the screen. And you can see it in this video. You can see those 24 words. Why he lets us see the 24 words? I think because he's already gotten it out. Uh, and right, it's transferred. transferred the Bitcoins, right? Yeah. Um, and then what he needed next was the pin. And he followed the instructions and he ran it and the pin appeared. And the joy and the look on this guy's face in this video is just astounding. It's just absolutely great to see what this guy think, thinks. He's just so happy. And, and he says, months of soul-crushing anxiety fell away like big clods of mud that had been clinging to my soldier shoulder. It's not soldiers. And he... I can imagine how triumphant this was. Felt. I, I get excited about getting a, a technical thing solved, but this guy is getting a technical thing solved and getting $30,000. Yeah, that makes it a little bit better, doesn't it? So this, to me, is a perfectly acceptable way of exploiting for profit. Yeah. Hey, there you go. Yeah, very Because it's, so. your, it's your own it's – your you're getting your own back. You're not stealing anything from anyone, but – Anyway. Wow. That is quite a story. Yes. It it was very long. I apologize it was so long, but go and read it. Go and watch the video at the end. It's worth diving through, that's for sure. Oh, gosh. And for 30000 yeah, that's that's a pretty good payout. And hopefully he's learned to be a little bit more careful when he uh, is taking his Bitcoin OPSEC a little more seriously because... You could have put all of that into a password manager. Very simply, right? Create a new password manager, put it on 20 different thumb drives, or even split them up and put it in different locations. Um, I remember something about... uh, if you had a passphrase, you could divide it up amongst, say, five thumb drives and give them away to five trusted friends. Any three of those thumb drives would have reconstructed the oh, data. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. That's so a good you, way to do it. So you'd need three friends to collude. And that's fairly unlikely that three friends are going to betray you. Yeah. Just make sure you have so some yeah. good friends. Yes. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, that's fascinating. If any of you out there have Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, I do hope that you're taking sufficient care of them because while we, well, we all hope things like this don't happen, and I think it's it shows like you know he he clearly had a at least some understanding of of Bitcoin of how it works. He knew enough to buy a hardware wallet, right? So he's interested mm-hmm. in all this sort of stuff. But just how a few small circumstances when you only have one copy of something. What can really easily go wrong, even if it seems pretty unlikely at the outset? Uh, I can't imagine how uh, how sick to my stomach I would feel if that pin did not work. Yep. And I'm just so glad that he persevered. Yeah, and, that really makes the story. That's for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. I can't imagine. I, can't I, I just either. can't imagine. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, don't don't make the same mistakes that we've just heard about. And uh, maybe you don't trust cloud services to store this kind of thing, uh, but you do want to make sure that you have reliable backups. Oh, my friends, we've got one last sponsor for you, and it's the place to be. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There you'll find the ultimate guide to buying a new server, 
for open source. There's a ton of pitfalls you can you can avoid here. Inaccurate or overinflated quotes, being sold the wrong hardware, poorly built servers, missed deadlines, and the frustrations of outsourced tech support. There's so much more though. IX Systems they really are the people that know what they're doing. They've been here through dot-com bubbles and bursts. They have a great understanding of all the hardware, of all the businesses. If you go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, you'll really see what I'm talking about because you can see the, the partners they work with, the people in the industry that they're partners with, people like Intel with their incredible Intel processors, people like NASA, Yelp, Disney, Sony, Berkeley. These are some of the, these are some of the customers of IX. You can be one too, and we hope you will be because they see the value. IX is experts in, in custom, custom hardware, custom storage, big data storage. Whatever your needs are, IX is there ready to help. They've got a super talented team of sales engineers and a great set of products ready made for you. So maybe, maybe you do have some Bitcoin and you want to keep it safe. Maybe you, you, know, you have some encrypted files, but you want to make sure you have backups. Let me suggest the FreeNAS Mini. Super reliable, super easy to get started. You can buy it right from iHex, or if you're an Amazon Prime customer, you can buy it, buy it with Prime. So it's it's great to get started with. It comes with a very, very clean, pretty well-designed chassis. It makes it super simple to do maintenance, replace hard drives if you need to, but odds are you won't need to. See, iHex, they're pretty darn smart, so they know that uh, you know most drives are going to fail within the first couple of days. So they've, yeah, believe this or not, they're going to burn in test your hardware so it's super reliable when it ships to you it's ready to go it's ready to work FreeNAS mini is perfect for home office small office anywhere you just need a little extra storage and by little i mean you know terabytes here so not not too little maybe just little in ix terms and it runs the awesome open source FreeNAS software you can build it yourself if you want to but the FreeNAS mini is just beautiful it's really well designed it's really robust They've put in a lot of time and effort to making sure this is a reliable, low-power, easy-to-use system, easy-to-administer, but it's got all the power of ZFS behind it. So that's another thing about IX. They're super involved in the OpenZFS project. They work upstream. They help. They have a ton of people who are experts in using, battle-testing, giant deployments, small deployments, ins and outs of the ZFS file system, and that's the get knowledge you get to tap into. Their sales engineers are excited to talk to you. Give them a call. They have a great website. You can buy, you can configure, you can test it all out on the website if that's what you want to do. But I think you'll be missing out because when you give them a call, you'll talk to real humans who are excited technologists just like you. And, you know, you may not be an expert in this new this new realm of server. Maybe you're putting together your first data center. You, uh, you know, sure, you do the software side, but you're not really that familiar with hardware. Whatever the story, maybe you're a hardware expert and you just want to get things done and ordered the right way the first time doesn't matter. Those are all perfect use cases for IX. And really, they make it so easy, especially with the FreeNAS Mini, but with all their products. like You just have no more excuse not to have reliable backups, reliable storage in your life. So head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Get started. Go configure some things. And make sure you check out their social media because they have a ton of great stuff out there. Go click on their blog page. You'll see all the cool conferences and places that they go. And you'll see some of their server envy posts. Don't miss those because, boy, do they have some beautiful custom servers that they built for people. And that's where they show them off. Hey, it looks like they were just at the OpenZFS Developer Summit. They've got their 2017 report. So make sure you check that out, too. And thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And now it's time for the feedback. That's right, our favorite time in the show where we get to hear from you, our beloved audience. First up, from Mr. B. 
back up to tapes. Hey, everyone. Thank you very much for answering my question in Spy Tapes Tech Snap 340. But I failed to send you another question for your next show, which was coincidentally with no listener questions. Apologies for that. Hey, no worries, Mr. B. Anyway, well, mine is now some some sort of a request here. You forgot to answer my second question in our previous email regarding doing backup to tapes. So what do you think? Is it a good idea to use ZFS for backup to tapes? Or is it better to use rsync or some other backup program such as rsync? Or Bacula. Great question, Mr. B. Sorry about that. I'm just going to turn this right over to our resident backup and tape master, the one and only Mr. Dan. Would you say I'm biased in the in this you area? May, you may be. Uh, I, I wasn't going to go I, there, but I think I am biased. Yeah, I would say true. yes. You use Bacula. Um, don't use tape for file system level type stuff. I, I, I prefer to put stuff on tape that is is the real data, not the file system. Just like actually um, the raw files. or like The raw files. Of so make it file system independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're much better off using uh, Bacula to put the stuff on there than you, use, than you are to use ZFS. Now, what you can do, and this is what I do, is if you're going to be backing up a ZFS-based file system, take a snapshot as part of your backup process and then back up the snapshot. Don't back up the live file system. Uh, Why? Because when you start backing up this file at the start of the file system, by the time you get to the end of the file system, this other file will be different than from when it was when you started backing this one up. Uh, by taking a snapshot, the snapshot is read-only, and it means that no changes will occur to any of the files in that snapshot while you're backing them up, which means when you restore, you will have a snapshot of what the files were when you started the backup. So they'll all be completely consistent. Um, for, For example, a log file. A log file that you restore may indicate that something has happened when it actually happened 10 minutes ago. So because because the, the files keep changing as you're backing up. So in short, don't back up live files, back up a snapshot. And use Bacula, not ZFS or rsync. Is it worth um, setting up Bacula just for this case? Like if you if they if they already have mm. if someone already has other backup situations in play but they just want to add tapes yeah. as a the, the, then just use tar the yeah. tape the tape ar- archiving tool yeah so just use that instead and, and back up to tape that way but um, no that that would that's still not be still not going to be as good as using Bacula mm-hmm. but yeah but, but maybe a middle ground okay that's super helpful mm. thank you Dan. Uh, and thank you, Mr. B, for the feedback and keeping us honest there about answering all your questions. Much appreciated. Uh, okay, so moving right along today, uh, up next, we've got a letter from Jonathan. Jonathan writes about feedback on crack updates. I really do believe in trust, but verify. Are there any good tools, tests, scans, etc. that I can use to see if all my access points and Wi-Fi cards are updated at my friends and families or just on my own network? Thanks, Jonathan. You got anything here, Mr. Dan? I don't. All right. Well, I got one. I don't think. Oh, go on. 
I don't think there's any way for you to interrogate an access point and say, hey, listen, what software are you running and has it been patched and what level is it at? Or in the key, case of a hardware wrap, you know, what version is your firmware and what's running? Right. Those ones um, would probably have to go check. Um, and there's we I think we posted some yeah. links in our previous show notes about some like here's every vulner or here's every patch that we know of so far. Uh, so go check that out. I did find one Python script here. Um, we'll have this in the show notes. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty short script. Definitely go, you know, inspect it before you're going to run it on any computer. Don't just trust the random internet. But uh, basically, it's a it's a wrapper over WPA supplicant to try to run the attack against yourself. Uh, so it looks like it's got um, Kali Linux dependencies uh, here. So go go get Kali, run the commands here, go download the Python script. Uh, it's got a big help page to help you get started, and then you should be able to go target uh, an AP. I have not tried this, although it does seem kind of fun. Um, also note that this tool may incorrectly say that an AP is vulnerable uh, just due to benign retransmissions of data frames, uh, but they're releasing it anyway, so there may be some false positives out there. That would be a good time to then go and make sure you check your, your firmware versions, look for patched versions, etc. But hopefully this can help uh, see the show, show notes for the link. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. If anyone else has any tools, um, you know, maybe they've been using some other tools, existing tools, their favorite tools to, to test their APs for compliance, do let us know. We've got one more bit of feedback today. Let's see here. Pulser. Recommended reporting process for phishing, malware, virus, etc. Dear Dan and Wes, I'd be very interested in a teardown on reporting phishing and other security attacks. When I send a simple phishing email that I have not fallen for, what, what should I do? Do I just delete it or do I report it? Who do you report this to and how do you, how do you go about reporting it? Is it worth reporting these phishing attacks to protect your, your fellow, fellow humans? For example, is it re- worth reporting a phishing attack to VirusTotal, Google, phishing email sent from a domain provider, phishing email linked website domain provider, government, an antivirus company? Other types of security reporting might require separate teardowns, I'm not sure. Enjoying the show. Thank you very much, Balzer. Well, what do you think, Dan? How uh, how best to report some of these things? I used to report all this stuff. I, I used to be very persistent about going in and reporting all this stuff, and then I stopped. Huh. It, 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 it there's just so much spam out there that I couldn't be bothered. I, now I just. It, if my spam filter catches it, it catches it, and if it doesn't, it, it gets deleted. Um, but I asked a few people who I know work in this area, and they gave a few suggestions. And I'm not recommending that you do this. I'm just saying this is what people I asked said. Uh, get a spam cop account, report it there. There's something called Fish Tank, P-F-I-S-H Tank. Um, and if you have software running on your, on your, um, machine, which, uh, scans for such stuff, check that box that says share info with software vendor and Kaspersky will get copies of the stuff that Kaspersky or whoever you're using will get copies of any malware or, uh, spam. So make sure that they get that. And someone said the the FBI also has a website that you can report stuff on that, but I didn't actually find that. Um, I used to be quite 
persistent about this stuff, but there's just there's only so much time in the world, and there's so much spam, and the spammers are winning. So uh, I, I now don't do anything. I just I let my uh, email provider worry about that, and I, re- I report that spam, but then they deal with it. Got it. If they deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. I can't. It's just too much time. Too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, that seems pretty reasonable. Um, thanks all for the questions today and the feedback. Much appreciated. If you guys have anything you do with these sorts of things, uh, have advice for stuff that we should cover, stuff we've missed, or uh, just general feedback, please do let us know. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. TechSnap.Reddit.com. And we're both on Twitter. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the Roundup. All right, now it's time for the final segment in today's show. I know it's sad to see us go, but before we go, we've got a ton of great links in this here roundup. First up, some news over at Grafana. Looks like they're working on a pull request for data sources as configuration. Hey, this is kind of an exciting little uh, news item. It doesn't look like it's complete yet, but it's something I'll definitely be happy to see. What about you? I'm not using Grafana, but all the Grafana graphs I've seen, I thought, ooh, those look nice. And I have tried to get it running, but then just got sidetracked. And I was thinking this morning that I really want to get very nice metrics going for this new server that, I'm, that I've am that i got up and running. Totally. Because uh, one of the things that I've always wanted to do is is get a graph of how the server load changes when you flush the cache. Mm-hmm. And by flush the cache, I mean all the all the uh, static web pages that have been already generated and are still valid. What happens when you do that? Um, but yeah, this looks really cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, Grafana is great. I've had some people refer to it as sexy graphite. Uh, they've got, it gained, it's gained a lot of support for all kinds of stuff recently. It has alerting capabilities built into it now. You can pull from all kinds of different data sources not just graphite uh, i think they've even got like a hmm. postgres connector now or at least they're working on it yeah uh, elastic searches in there influx prometheus a, a ton of great stuff uh before it, though it was a little like you had to configure a lot of stuff with the ui and it didn't necessarily yeah. mean itself to let's say generating everything with puppet or chef or ansible so once this pr is done assuming that it goes well uh, we may see a more easily configurable reproducible grafana which i think would be great is it Grafana that uses that can use something called Collect D? Yeah, uh, Collect D. You, you still you're still going to need storage. Collect D asks as the collector component, so you yes. run it on all your yes. nodes. Uh, yep. You would send it to whatever storage you want. Um, it definitely does support things like Graphite and others right out of the box, and then you'd point Grafana at that data store, and then, and then Grafana can make arbitrary charts for you. Yeah, and Collect D five is available on FreeBSD, and it looks like. Uh, a bunch of people are keeping it up to date. Oh, awesome. I see a whole bunch of commits over the past few months. Hey, hmm. yeah, it's always nice. And hmm. when you, you know, especially then, like if you get that down, uh, you know, you can kind of have yourself a database somewhere, put collectors everywhere, and just have a bunch of data that you can throw together. And now you've got some monitoring going. Okay. Yeah. So speaking, this sounds interesting. Speaking of having yep. more data in a pretty yes. way, you pointed us over here to an interesting new tool I hadn't heard of. HTTP stat. Yeah. I don't know where I I got this reference. I think it was in one of the um, in-house feeds. Like you or Alan or someone pointed me at this. 
And it, the original HP stat is compiled on Go. Um, but then if you if you scroll down, he says somewhere closed. Let me find closed here. Closed. Ah, oh, I forget where he put this. So the original one is Dave Cheney's HP stat. And in that one, it says, hey, listen, we're closed down. Um, but then if you go from there and look at um, the one he refers to, it's a Python version. So the original HP stat, I think it's the original, was compiled on Go. This new one is a single Python program. And basically, it tells you for a single request, it tells you the DNS lookup time, how long it takes takes to get a TCP connection, how long the SSL handshake took, how long the server then processed, and how long it took to transfer the data. Uh, and it's nice and colorized. And I did one that compares the new and old Freshport server. It's not as nicely colorized as the, the diagram that comes on, on, on uh, GitHub, but it was interesting to compare the two. And basically, the new server versus the old server, it's almost a two-to-one time frame. And most of that time is spent in, it's not in transfer. It's actually, it's, it's very interesting where it is. Milliseconds, it doesn't look all that different. I can't see where the big gap is. Oh, yeah, TCP connection takes a long time to uh, look up. And, and the, the TLS handshake takes a long time as well. And all of that has to be, the server processing time is pretty much identical. 420 milliseconds versus 387 milliseconds. And someone was trying to point out the major difference here is Apache versus uh, Nagios. Uh, sorry, Nginx. Oh, yeah, okay. But I don't think it is because it's the TLS handshake that takes so long. It takes only 86 milliseconds on the new server, but takes 400 milliseconds on the old server. So that's a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, is it possible that the Nginx is just doing, handling that termination faster? Is that where you're terminating SSL? Uh, uh, yes. Yes. SSL is being terminated on each. Uh, um, yes. Be interesting to set up, uh, you know, just a fresh install of each, uh, just a simple you on know, the plain same text, server, yeah, plain text yeah. website. Install it from both, and then yeah, see yep. see what that yep. looks like. Hmm. But but yeah, uh, it, it's ten year old hardware, right? And I'm sure there's not any any encryption in there. Uh, there may be encryption built into the new one. I'm not sure. But anyway, very nice tool. Have fun. Yeah, I, I love that it's just a you know simple Python. Goes fine too. You can get a nice static binary, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, most of my servers have Python on there already, so it's super simple to be able to just you know wget or or uh, curl this Python script. Plus, it looks like it relies yeah. on curl underneath. I've already seen like um, you know I've passed curl some options flags to get some of this data, so it's cool to know how it works underneath. And have this really nice layer on top to be able to put in tickets or, you know, put in a report, whatever you need to. Maybe go show, hey, look, this is working or we have a new performance problem on our website. Really just handy. So uh, good work, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I can't take credit. Someone else gave it to me. But anyway. Too late. You have it. Um, yes. Ugh, so this is no good. Up next. Oh, no. Seems like someone's Gentoo server has been ransomware. Ah, I don't like to hear that. 
No. This is pretty ugly. The guy doesn't know how it happened, but it happened. And there's all kinds of ways. There's five pages yeah, there's, of discussion a, there's a here. huge discussion about this. Uh, you don't really hear, you know, a lot of times it seems like, uh, you know, there's not, not a huge number of Gentoo systems out there. I mean, still plenty. Uh, and generally people who run Gentoo, you know, they've gone through the hoops so they understand how to configure things. Uh, I'm sure that is usually true of people who you like FreeBSD as well. Uh, but it can really happen to anyone. So hopefully there's some good insights here. Go check it out. Let us know what you think. Yeah. And basically have good backups. Oh, that's, yes. That's, what, that's what, what the crowd is saying. If you skip to page five of the reports. But anyway, yeah, be right, interesting yeah. to see what comes out of this once they figure out what it was. Yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of having good backups, you'll probably need some storage for that, and you'll never yes. guess, but uh, Backblaze has got their latest hard drive stats out for Q3 2017. Yes, and it is interesting. Now, people are going to zero in on the wrong things. Look at the things that have thousands of hard drives. Thousands. They're going to look and say, oh my god, look at what happened to WDC here. They have yeah. a one point two. 2% failure rate. It's only 180 drives, okay? Look at the 15,000 or the 33,000 drives and look at that. The Seagate. 33,000 drives, they had 3.28%. Don't look at the Seagate that had only 400 drives and had a 20% failure rate or only had 140 drives and a 31% failure rate. Don't look at those. Look at the ones with a huge number of drives. Don't don't even look at Toshiba that had zero. <laughs> don't look at that. Yeah, there's just not enough drives. We need, yep. we need big numbers to be able to make some good inferences. Yeah. Now, I mentioned Seagate with huge numbers. Seagate is also listed there with less than uh, with a 0.72% failure rate. So it all depends on what you're looking. Other brands of, of Seagate had zero out of a thousand drives fail over an annualized period. And yeah, read these carefully yeah definitely these reports are always interested interesting uh but uh only take them you know only take them so far in in that they are just one set of numbers uh from you know from one company using them but still i'm glad that they publish this stuff it's fascinating to, for us to uh pour over um okay so moving right along we covered something like this from one of their uh, one of their big name competitors last week, but it looks like there's yes. been another flaw in bug reporting this time over at Google. Yeah, and it's interesting what the guy did. When when you get a Gmail account, you select your email address, then you have to verify it, and then you can start using it. So what this guy did was get the Gmail address then changed the Gmail address, and then verified it. And that got him in. Wow. Uh, there, there's a link in the show notes to the original blog post, which goes into much more detail. And all, all up, the guy got uh, a little over nearly $16,000 worth of bug bounties for these three bugs that he reported. And he's also given another $3,100 uh to encourage him to continue research on uh, this area. So, yeah, bug bounties encourage research. So good on Google for doing this and giving him yeah. incentive to continue through this. It's great. 
Yeah, definitely. It's good to see the right incentives at play here, and instead of getting you know upset, be like, oh no, hey, thank you for helping make this better. It's much better. Much better. Uh, all right, so uh, now back to some back to what we started the show with, which is maybe just helpful advice uh, over at Increment Development. Here's an article about centers called Center Stage: Best Practices for Staging Developments. Yes, I started reading this. If you don't have a staging environment, you're probably flying on the seat of your pants. Um, Basically, I like this paragraph. Staging is where you validate the known unknowns of your systems. These known unknowns of the dependencies, interactions, and edge cases foreseeable by the humans in your company and the machines they tend. Staging is where you gain confidence in your systems by consensus. So basically, before you push to production, you push to staging. And if staging is a reliable copy of production, then chances are your push to production will be pretty uneventful. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I know, like, you know, there's there's certainly times when you're starting, maybe you don't need one right away. Uh, for a while, dev suffices, depending on your scale. But before too long, you're going to get to a time where you're like, boy, I really wish I just had a copy of production right here that I could test on without real customers getting impacted. And right then you're like, oh, yep. OK, yep. I guess I, need, I do need I do need a staging environment. So uh, go check it out. See see what you think. Let us know. Uh, maybe you have some good horror stories or success stories about staging environments, development, deployment practices at your company. I know I would be very much interested to hear all about that. So let us know about that. Um, before that, though, we've got a few more items in today's gigantic roundup. Uh, this one over at Privacy News Online turns out the mm-hmm. recent catastrophic Wi-Fi vulnerability. Yeah, we just talked about called crack. Yeah, it was in plain sight mm-hmm. for 13 years behind a corporate paywall. What's going on? Bad reporting. That's what's going on. Um, I, 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 this article is all wrong. Uh, and I verified this by talking to a chap who, who works on wi- Wi-Fi drivers. Excellent. So the specification uh, has been available for more than a decade at no cost. So that's the 2016 standard, which is the latest, is also available at no cost. But you have to create an account if you go over here and and do that. The other thing is, it is not a corporate firewall. The IEEE is a non-profit. It is not a corporation. It is a non-profit. And one of the reasons that they're able to exist is through membership fees. And the most expensive membership fee listed here, which would get you access to this, is $200. But you don't have to pay that because the previously aforementioned methods of getting these standards are free. I hate this type of journalism. Uh, Sorry, it's not really journalism. I apologize. (laughs) Whoa, thanks for setting the record straight there, Dan. Much appreciated. Okay, so here's a little bit of information that I thought was fascinating. You uh, checked it out as well. Uh, yes. The register is reporting that Oracle's top ZFS man calls for Big Red to let the file system upstream into Linux. Whoa! Yeah, you really should listen to the uh, to to the video. The it gives interesting stuff as to what was going on in Oracle. Uh, once they close source ZFS and all the stuff that was going on, it's just so fascinating to see um, how they were deploying it in huge data sensors. Like they were putting 
petabytes onto this stuff. Um, and then uh, right now, it, it's very, it sounds like it's very hard to get existing culture at Oracle to go with the open source concept and say, hey, listen, let's shove all this into Linux. They want to be very protective of their intellectual property. Sure. Yeah. But this guy thinks that things are changing and he sort of hints that eventually, yes, it will get released and it will wind up being in Linux. Wow. Well, that would be a, that would be a happy day for me, oh, I, yes. I do think. Uh, so. Yes. And it would be it would be an interesting sign of changing times if it does go through at Oracle and might send some some good signals to the open source community that you know haven't always been there, especially in Oracle's case. Yes. Interesting. Okay. All right. We got one more roundup item today, and uh, I like this topic because you know we talk about it, but don't always necessarily have a great set of examples. But here's some things you can do on the dark web that aren't illegal. Uh, I'm just going to read two paragraphs out of this. The dark web isn't just for buying drugs and hiring assassins. It's a massive network of websites and communities that exists outside of mainstream internet culture. And there's plenty to do on the dark web without breaking any laws, from book clubs to crisis preparation. The deep web refers to anything you can't access in a search engine, either because it's protected behind a password or because it's buried deep within a regular website. The dark web is a subsection of the deep web that you can only access with a special browser like Tor to mask your IP address. It includes illegal markets such as the infamous Silk Road, along with plenty of other less objectionable websites. So the deep web is stuff that's not Googled, for example, and the dark web is that stuff which is which includes the illegal stuff. So you can go on the dark web. Don't worry about it. Deep web, well, there you go. Interesting. No, it's yeah, the other way around, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The, dark, the dark web is the illegal stuff oh. or includes the illegal stuff. Right. The deep does not. But it can just be services that take your privacy seriously, um, you know, or otherwise operate on the dark web. Like, I know the New York Times now has a Tor Onion uh, address, so you can go browse the New York Times over Tor if you would like to. And there's a ton of other non-illegal websites on there. So, uh, hey, maybe you guys are using it. Do let us know. Hopefully you've enjoyed our roundup today. Anything you have before we get out of here and go browse the dark web for ourselves? Mm, no, thank you. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you all for joining us for today's episode of TechSnap. This has been episode 341, broadcast live on October 31st, 2017. If you'd like to see more of the TechSnap program, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you can find the archives of this show, the previous incarnation of this show, and a whole bunch of other excellent tech, Linux, BSD, all kinds of content uh go hog wild in there there's an awesome number of shows you really can't go wrong with jupiter broadcasting content check out ask noah or user error or the excellent linux action news and don't ever miss our friends over at the bsd now podcast that's also a ton of great fun if you don't get quite enough bsd on this show uh, there you can also go find jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. That has the contact page. You can send us letters, emails, all that fun stuff. Uh, there's also the live stream, IRC, and the calendar let you know when we're here 
live. You can also go to techsnap.reddit.com to find to post uh, links for us to look at or find us both on Twitter. He is at techsnap underscore Dan, and I'm at West Main. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you here for next week's TechSnap. Thank you.